0: Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, so we are in Hebrews chapter 11, which is the Hall of Faith, as it's sometimes called. And if you remember from last week, we looked at the introductory verses that talked about what faith was, being assured, having a solid conviction of things not seen, and then we started to talk about Abel last week, and we, but we finished talking about Abel, that's about as far as we got. And so instead of looking at this whole chapter, because it's huge, there's a lot, we're going to probably take two, two either two characters or two events per Wednesday night. So tonight we're going to look at Enoch and Noah. But before we do that, well, let's just read Hebrews 11, 5 and 6. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For who would ever draw near to God must believe that He exists, and then He rewards those who seek Him. What, what word did you have for since now before He was taken? He was, I have attested. Yeah, attested. Mine says commended. 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 It's the same thing that we saw earlier that in verse 3 last week. Um, I'm sorry, verse 2 last week. The old people received their commendation. So before we even jump into this, it's interesting the word, um, it, without faith it's impossible to what? Please God. Please God. And it's said that Enoch, before he was taken up, what does it say there? He was commended as having pleased God. That's an interesting concept, right? Pleased God. 2 Corinthians 5, nine says this, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. So, we, this is an interesting concept here. We exist to please God, and our faith pleases God. So, here's a big question. What actually brings pleasure to God? What pleases God? Worship. There's a quote that John Pat Piper had a long time ago that really stuck with me from his book, Pleasures of God, the very opening book. That's a really good book, by the way. He says, do you feel loved by God because you believe he makes much of you? Or because you believe He frees you and empowers you to enjoy making much of Him. What do you think the modern church basically says? The first one, right? God makes so much out of me. It's all about me. It's how much I can get. As opposed to the whole reason we exist is to enjoy making much of God. Okay? So, from Enoch, we see a life of faith that pleases God. So we have to ask a, like so let's just ask the question do you want to please God? Yes. Who here does not want to please God? Okay? We want to please God. The question is how? Well, we please God by faith. But what kind of faith? An Enoch type of faith. Now there's not a lot about Enoch. Okay? So let's just ask the question how did Enoch please God? First question. Second question Okay, first question, how did Enoch please God? Second question, okay, how do we live a life of faith that pleases God? So the writer here says, what does he say about Enoch? Verse 5, by faith Enoch was taken up. He was taken up, which means he was transferred or translated. Now there's not a lot of information about Enoch, but let's go back to Genesis, which is probably, hi Jamie, which is what we're going to be doing probably a lot over the next couple of weeks is going back to Genesis because these first characters all take place in Genesis until we get to Moses and go back to Exodus. So let's go back to Genesis 5, 18-24 and that's where we find the story of Enoch So, Genesis five eighteen through twenty four. When Jared, you can only get it. You didn't know Jared was like a, I thought it was a jeweler, but now it's it's in the Bible. So I didn't. I've read that many times before. I even thought about that. When Jared had lived one hundred sixty two years, he fathered Enoch. That's all we hear about Enoch in the Old Testament. Now, these are long lifespans back before the flood. So, we know Methuselah is the, the, the longest living person, and so Enoch is Methuselah's dad. And so, what was Enoch's lifespan? 300, which is pretty short, right? Compared to his son who lived 969 years. But what we have there in verse 24, let me go back to Genesis here. Um, I went back to Hebrews. Let's go back to Genesis. In verse 24, what does your Bible say? Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Isn't that interesting? He walked with God and he was not. Now, here's what we don't know. We aren't told how Enoch was taken. Was it like a whirlwind like Elijah? Was it a beam me up Scotty moment? (laughs) All we know is that God did it. But here's one thing we do know. Enoch's being taken up or translated is probably a precursor or a prototype of what will happen to us if we're alive at the second coming. Um, that's about the closest thing we can think of. And we find that in 1 Corinthians 15, 51-52, where Paul writes, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. So the Bible doesn't give us the details of how Enoch was taken. It just says he was taken. He was no more. The closest thing we could probably think about is is the rapture or the resurrection of the, of those who are still alive were just taken up okay but what does the writer say of Hebrews by faith and if you remember from last week that by faith is an active acting on the basis of faith having an active faith he pleased God so look at the Genesis text look at verse twenty four all it says about what is the only thing it says about Enoch besides he fathered these people and he lived this long? What's the one thing it says there in verse twenty-four? Enoch did what? Walked, Walk walked with, God. with God. Okay. Mine says he walked faithfully. Walked faithfully. Okay. It's a very unusual expression. It doesn't say he walked behind God. He walked before God, but he walked with God. If you trace this expression, walking with God, throughout the Old Testament, you find that it is a Hebrew expression that conveys the idea that a person has a close fellowship or friendship with God. So let's talk about faith here for a moment. What was Enoch commended for? His faith. What do we know about his faith? What's the only thing we know about his faith so far in Genesis? He walked with God. So what is a faith that pleases God? Walking with God. Well, What does that mean? Okay, let's look at some scriptures. Micah 6.8, famous passage. He has told you, old man, what is good... And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? So it was a close, personal, intimate relationship that Enoch had with God that these other guys probably didn't have. Not that these other guys didn't know who God was, but nobody else there says walked with God and nobody else was translated. Everybody else died. Methuselah died. He lived so and so years, he died. Enoch walked with God and he was no more. He did not die. die. He was taken up. Okay, James 4.8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Okay, when you think about walking with God, think about the imagery. If you're walking with God, what does that mean? You're going his same direction. <laughs> You're not leading in your own direction, and you're not following way behind, but you're lockstep with God going His direction. And Paul tells us what that looks like. What does Galatians 5.25 say? If we live by the Spirit, let us also what? Walk by the Spirit. Okay. So, there's one thing we know from the Old Testament. The only thing we know from the Old Testament is that, number one, Enoch walked with God. He had a close, personal, intimate fellowship with God where he walked beside God. But there's something in the New Testament that tells us another thing about Enoch that we don't know from the Old Testament and we don't know from Hebrews. We've got to get to Jude. Here's the second thing we know. Not only did Enoch experience this deep friendship with close... whoop, That doesn't make sense. Is that what I typed? Terena just copies and pastes. Enoch, not only did Enoch experience this deep friendship by spending time with God, but we also know that Enoch must have experienced years of persecution for preaching a message of judgment. Now you may say, where in the world in Genesis does it say Enoch preached a message of judgment? It doesn't, but Jude tells us. And Jude's inspired scripture, and somehow the Holy Spirit told Jude to put it down in the Bible. So what does Jude 14 and 15 say? It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all of the ungodly of their deeds, of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. I emphasize the word ungodly. that's used four times there. Now think about this. All we know is that Enoch, preached against ungodliness in his culture. How old was he? 365 years. Now, most preachers, like if I began preaching, let's say I started preaching at 20, and I retire at 70, I get 50 years of preaching. I make a lot of people mad in those 50 years. <laughs> this guy's preaching for 300 and something years, and he's preaching... And he's preaching. And what's he preaching against? Ungodliness. And you have to ask the question, okay, what type of ungodliness was he preaching? Because this is before the flood. What does Genesis 6, 5 say? The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So Enoch is living in a culture pre-flood that is as Jude would say four times ungodly and Jude or Enoch is preaching against this culture so we have to infer from Jude that Enoch preached probably a very unpopular message for years without compromise in a culture of great wickedness he not only preached it but he lived it in other words he practiced what he preached he walked with God he pleased God his message and his life matched. So for 365 years, Enoch walked with God and he preached. And what he preached matched his walk. His walk matched his talk. And I like what Warren Weersby said. He says, Enoch had been walking with God for so many years that his transfer to heaven was not even an interruption. Think about that. They had such a close relationship that, but I mean, they were so close that when Enoch was taken up in heaven, it wasn't like anything different had happened. Oh, I'm just, I mean, I'm walking home to my house instead of getting home to my house. I get to go home to heaven. So that's the kind of faith that pleases God. A type of faith where you walk intimately with God, and not all of you. I mean, obviously, you're not preachers. But a life that is your, your talk, your message, who you are, that comes out of your mouth matches your lifestyle. And especially in, a, in an ungodly culture that doesn't want to hear what you have to say. So, by implication here. Walking with God and pleasing God are synonymous. Enoch's faith was evidenced by pleasing God by spending time with him and close friendship and seeking his face. So that's Enoch's faith. That's all the evidence we have of Enoch in the Bible. Okay? Three references. Genesis, he walked with God. Hebrews, he pleased God. Jude, he preached an unpopular message against the ungodly. That's all we have. But that was so much, whatever that faith was, it pleased God so much that he allowed Enoch not to die but took him up. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen to us. Enoch, Elijah, about the only two that really got to be taken up. Unless we're still alive at the coming of Christ, we'll get to experience that. Um, So that's Enoch. Second question that we asked is, okay, if, if Enoch lives a life that pleases God, second question is, okay, how do we live a life that pleases God? And the writer of Hebrews answers that how do I bring pleasure to God what pleases God now let's be real careful that we don't get into a works based system here let's talk about faith for a moment I'm going to ask you a trick question I know what I think the answer is but you may disagree with me is faith faith Let me just ask this way. Is faith a gift from God? Yes. Faith is a gift. So, your ability to even have faith, does it come from you or does it come from God? It comes from God. So, let's just let me just put this up here. You guys are all tracking with me. The faith that we have is not even our own. It's the gift of God. It's grace-generated faith so that we may not boast. So let's not think that, oh, God loves us. God, God, God likes us. God accepts us based upon how faithful we are. Because if God loved us based upon anything that we did, then would there be room to boast? God grants us faith as a gift and yes, we are to exercise that, but let's just not um, get boastful thinking that you know, what, what I do somehow earns God's favor. That's not what the writer of Hebrews is saying. So let's turn back to Hebrews um, <clears throat> and look at what he says right after Enoch. He's got verse 6. It, verse 6 almost seems like it's taken out of, out, of, out of place. It really almost seems like if I were writing this, I would put verse 6 up by verse after verse 3. Because he's got, by faith, Abel, by faith, Enoch, and then Noah. But then like in there, it's inserted this whole idea of what pleases God. But I think it's tied directly to Enoch. So that's why I think it's there. And besides that, we can't argue with it because it's the Bible. So, so verse 6. Without faith, it's what? It's what? Impossible. impossible. Not improbable. It's impossible to do what? Please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So, without faith, it's impossible to, lead, to, to please him. Notice the writer doesn't say improbable. Likely. It may happen. No, he unequivocally says impossible, which means, again, that faith is supernatural. We can't merit it or produce it by human effort or energy. That's why it's called faith alone. But what kind of faith is he talking about here? Without faith, okay, what kind of faith are you talking about, writer of Hebrews? Are you talking about a James 2.19 faith? You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. Is that the type of faith? What? Okay, I said this last week. Everybody has faith. It's not, do you have faith? The question is, who's the object of your faith? Who's your faith in? Is it in Christ? Do we not live in a culture where everything's kind of fuzzy? fuzzy? Everybody just talks about God in the very generic sense. I'm not going to give this away, but I'm going to share something on Sunday morning that deals with this whole idea of just this fuzziness about God but I want you to, to, to look at what type, what type of faith, okay? What type of faith pleases God? Is it a generic, pan pamby just any type of faith? No. Here's the first type, that the, and it's right from the text. It is faith placed in the right God. The right God. Because people say they have faith in Allah, they have faith in Buddha, they have faith in all these types of things. But what does he say there? Whoever, without faith is impossible pleasing, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he what exists. exists. Well, okay, I believe God exists. What does that mean? Does this just mean that we need to believe in God generically? there's a huge hint in the original language that you don't get. I don't know how. You can't translate this in English and have it make sense. Here's how it can literally be translated. You must believe that God is the I am. Does that make a lot more sense? Now, our translations say we have to believe He exists, but literally... When you see the words, especially from our Names of God study, we did a couple, was that last year or whatever. When you see the word I am, what should that tell you? Are we talking about a generic God? Okay. Exodus 3.14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. I am is very close to the word Yahweh which is the covenant name of God. His personal name. His covenant name. It's not a generic God, but it's a God who has most clearly revealed Himself in His Son, Jesus Christ. So when it talks about you must believe that God exists, it's not just like you can go up to people on the street and say, do you believe in God? About... Here in Sterling, do you think, what, we said this last week, I don't know what the percentages are, but probably a pretty high percentage of people say, I believe in God. Okay, generic God. Okay, let's ask a deeper question. Okay, how do you define God? Well, for me, God is goddess. God is Allah. God is what I want her to be, him to be. Um, God doesn't punish anybody he loves. Okay, let's get more specific. Okay, let's ask a different question. This is the question I always ask like people. This is my definition. If you don't believe in... This, this is how I define God. Okay? Do you believe... This is what I tell, ask people. Do you believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is the Father of Jesus Christ, the Lord? Or just to ask it more simply, do you believe that God can only be found in Jesus Christ? Or to, ask, or to say it another way, what did Jesus say? Jesus gave seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. We're going to get to these on Sunday mornings. Seven I am statements. Basically equating himself with being the very embodiment of God. Not a generic God, but Christ alone. And one of the famous I am statements is John 14, 6, where Jesus said what? I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So when the writer of Hebrews here, and who's he talking to? He's talking to people that were steeped in their Old Testament that would have known. When they heard this being preached, you must believe that God is I Am. What are they thinking? That's the true Yahweh covenant God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Not just a generic God. So a faith that pleases God is not just a generic God. I mean, you see television stars, you see football players... They kiss and point to the, you know, after they win the game, get the winning touchdown. You know, I want to thank God. I want to, and I always, it's interesting because some football players will say, I want to thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, that's a different statement than I want to thank my God. But even then, I'll tell you what was really interesting. When I was in college, um, I was a film student and we had to watch, actually, we had to watch Madonna's, what was that? <laughs> What was the, this was in the early '90s. It was a documentary on Madonna and her big tour that she did in the early '90s. It, what was the tour? Come on, Madonna fans! Like all of you are like, come on. anyway, it doesn't matter what it was. But we had to watch a document documentary on Madonna, and I, I'm like, okay, why are we watching this? And half of it was in black and white. But one thing that stuck out to me was, okay, this is at the height when Madonna. Like this is like 1993, so this was like her whole Vogue and. Like, um, she was at the height. I mean, this was after, like, a virgin. This was after the 80s, early 90s. She'd hit the peak. Okay, so I'm watching this video, and right before they go out on stage to simulate all this weird stuff, she grabs her whole team and all of her, like, homoerotic dancers and everybody, and they grab hands. She's like, "Let's, let's, let's have a word of prayer before we go on stage. And so she starts leading them in prayer, and she's praying to God. She's asking God to bless their performance and asking God to... And I'm thinking... This does not compute at all. She's asking God to go out and bless debauchery on stage. And I just thought, that is so um, indicative. This was like in early 90s of this whole generic, I'm worshiping, I'm, I'm... Does that type of faith please God, what she just did? Is she walking with God? Okay. So the first type of faith that the writer of Hebrews says pleases God is faith in the right God. The I am God, Jesus Christ. But secondly, it must be faith in a rewarding God. Now at first glance, we may think about this like this sounds a little like God rewards us. Let's read the text. Let's not let the let's not let our preconceived notions come to the text. Let's read what it says. Verse 6, and without faith it's impossible to please him, for who would ever draw near to God must believe, number one, that he is the I am, he exists, and that he what? Rewards those who seek. seek Him. So we have to ask the question then. Okay, two questions: What does it mean to seek God, and what does it mean to be? The, what's the reward? If I were a prosperity preacher—Creflo Dollar, Jesse Duplantis, Kenneth Copeland, Benny Hinn—all those guys—I could take this verse out of context and say, and I'm sure they do this: Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So, you create faith by your words. So, if you want that jet, you want that million dollars, you confess it, you proclaim it because you want to please God with your faith. Because, look, it says right there, He rewards those who seek Him. You want a reward, you want your million dollars, you want your jet, you want your health, then you better ramp up your faith because God's only going to reward you based upon your faith. And let me tell you how to have good faith give a seed to my ministry, (laughs) that will demonstrate your faith. Give a seed. Give a seed of faith. Uh, there's somebody out there that's really struggling. Their they, home's in escrow. If they would just, and I see them right now in my mind, they're reaching out to the television screen. If they would just sow that seed of faith, just sow that seed of faith into my ministry, God will give you a breakthrough. God will reward you. And so that person on the other end of the line's thinking, well, I better not miss out on this this faith thing because God rewards me. I better plop down my check. They're, they're waiting right now. Don't don't go right now because if you don't go right now, you're gonna miss out. As if you know, God has you know that rewards only right then and there. And so basically, what's happening is all these people are going and sowing seeds in these guys' monies to pay for them to go get their planes and their jets and they're at the top of the pyramid scheme and they're making people feel guilty because they don't have enough faith and they feel like their faith needs to be rewarded in monetary financial gain. Is that what he's talking about here at all? Okay, so let's talk about, first of all, what it means to seek and then let's talk about what the reward is, okay? Seeking here that he uses here is a pretty strong word in the original language. It really means to hunt down, to search, to diligently pursue. And so let's just look at some Old Testament passages that give us this idea of what it means to seek after God. Psalm 27.4 One thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. What's he seeking there? One thing I seek after. What is that? To be, to be in God's presence. To enjoy the fullness of who God is. Psalm 63:1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary place where there's no water. Notice that the psalmist, it's very you gotta be very careful here. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek. What does it say? There's a bit, let me just ask you a question. Is there a big difference between seeking after God and seeking after God's benefits? It's a huge difference. The psalmist here does not say, earnestly I seek after all that you can, give." my heart's desire. What's his one desire? His one desire is to seek God. Now, obviously, God's benefits come in God's timetable and God's way, but we don't seek God for what He gives us. We seek God because He's worthy to be sought as God. Psalm 105, 3-4. through four. Glory in His holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in His strength. Seek His presence continuously. Psalm 119.2 Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart. Jeremiah 29.11-13 For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and for not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Here's the beauty. The beauty of seeking God is that he longs to be found. So what's the reward? If God richly rewards us, what's the reward? It's himself. And if you say that's not good enough, then you, I would probably say you're not a Christian. I hate to say that. Or you're not acting like one in that moment. (laughs) He will be the great reward. Christ himself will satisfy your deepest needs and in him you will find your greatest joy. He is the reward. He is the treasure. John 6.37 I don't know why I have John 6.37 in this. It doesn't make sense contextually, but we'll read it. At one point, I probably thought this made sense. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. I guess the point is that um, if we seek Christ and we come to Him and we find and, and we find Him, He will never get rid of us. He will always be there for us. Um, in Genesis 15.1, which is in the NIV version, it says, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. So who's the reward? God himself. Now, A.W. Tozer's written a famous book called The Pursuit of God. And at the very beginning, he's got this interesting statement. To have found God... And still to pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. Now, I'm going, to give you, I'm going to give you what that means, but I want you to think about that for a moment. When you become a Christian, do you find God? Or more importantly, does God find you? But does he still want to be found? If you're already a Christian, then why in the world over and over again would God say, seek me, seek me, seek me? It's a paradox, right? To have God, but to still want more of God. Do you have all of God that you need right now in your salvation? Theologically, yes. But are you experiencing the fullness of what God is? So here's the paradox. When we seek God, we find Him. And it doesn't end. We still keep seeking Him, and we find out more and more about Him. Our hearts burn with a passion to know Christ deeper and deeper, and to continually seek Him, to walk with Him like Enoch did. And it, it, the best way it's it's really expressed in the New Testament is what Paul says in Philippians three, eight through ten. Paul says, "Indeed, I count everything as loss." because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as scubalon, rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. That's the kind of faith Enoch had. A faith that walks with God. A faith that pleases God. A faith in the right God. And a faith that seeks after God as the great reward. Okay. That's very specific. It's not just generic, fluffy, oh, I have faith. It's a faith that walks with God. It's a faith that seeks God. It's a faith that longs for God. Okay, That is Enoch. Now, let's talk about Noah. And there's one verse about Noah. You ready? Hebrews 11:7. By faith, there it is, acting on the basis of faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, what we're going to look at here with Noah are three aspects of Noah's faith. What are three things that we see here that this scripture tells us about Noah's faith? And we can also go back to Genesis and see this in action. But specifically how it's structured here in this verse 7. So here's first. Noah's faith was marked by conviction in future unseen events. What does the first part of verse 7 say? By faith being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. Okay. Now we know... What that was, right? What are the events unseen to Noah? To us, it's like, duh, what's the big thing? When you think of Noah, what do you think of? The flood, the ark. But for Noah, had that happened yet? Had Noah ever seen rain? So God says to Noah, hey, go build this big boat-like thing. It's big enough to fit animals two by two because I'm going to flood the entire world and wipe it out. Now, just think about, you've heard the Noah's Ark story over and over again, but if this was the first time you ever heard it, what would you think of God? You want me to do what? (laughs) A flood? What does the flood show us? The flood shows us two primary things. Which are really the theme of the Bible: God's first of all God's judgment on wickedness, and secondly God's salvation. And this time it's just salvation of just one family. So let's go back to Genesis and let's um, let's read not the whole account because there's there's like three chapters that, that deal with that, but let's go back to Genesis chapter six, five through seven. Okay. This is the setup to the flood. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil only continually. That's that's really bad. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him into his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man who I am created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So, it's been about a thousand years since the creation of Adam. And the world, just after a thousand years, had become so wicked that God wanted to wipe it out. Now, Up to this point in the history of the world, had there ever been that major type of judgment? Who were, really the, only, who were the only people we know up to this point who experienced God's judgment per se? Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden and Cain. But up to this point, does the Bible record that people actually had a concept that God would judge them? And is this just going to be a minor judgment? This is going to be a worldwide flood that's going to destroy every single person, man, woman, child, animal, except for Noah and his family. So here's the issue. Even for Noah, the idea of God bringing judgment upon sin is really a foreign concept to this culture. In their eyes, it would be unbelievable that God would judge wickedness. Sound like our culture? That's all fairy tale stuff. God's not a God of judgment. God accepts you however you are. Some half truths there. But we live in the same type of culture, which is interesting. We'll talk about this in a moment. Jesus talks about in the end times, it's like the culture during the days of Noah. Okay? So Noah lived in a culture where they would have never seen a flood. They would have never thought there would be judgment. They probably never saw a big boat. And yet God said, go build because I'm going to flood. And Hebrews says his faith were in things not yet seen. We have the advantage of looking back and saying, oh, well, of course we know God's going to flood the earth. We can read it. But Noah, for the very first time he got this, this, that would take tremendous faith for him to believe that God would actually judge. Okay? Secondly, the second aspect of Noah was that he had faith in God's salvation of his family. Back in Hebrews, what does it say? It says, In reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. The saving of his family. Now look at Genesis 6.8. This is, I want to teach you something tonight that has been mistranslated for so many years and kids' Bibles get it wrong and it really messes up the doctrine of grace and it really makes it really a works-based type thing here, okay? What does Genesis 6, 8 say? Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Okay. You need to read this carefully. Did Noah find favor in the eyes in God's eyes, because he was better than everyone else, and somehow he earned God's favor because he was such a righteous dude. If so, he would have room to boast. If you look at the wording in the original Hebrew text, you hear a lot of people um, say, God saved Noah and his family because they were good, the reason, here's what they would say. Have you ever heard this say like in a children's Bible? The reason God saved Noah and his family because they were the only righteous ones on earth. They deserved to be saved because they were the righteous ones on earth. And so God, just cho- God chose to save them because they were the only ones righteous on earth. Okay. Is that why God chose to save Noah and his family? Was Noah any better? Was he just as wicked? Was his family just as wicked as every other family? Maybe not to an extent of what they did, but as far as their sin, was Noah any less sinful? No. Okay. His being righteous... Oh, it, here's what it literally reads in the, original, in the original Hebrew. It literally reads that Noah was a recipient of God's grace. The word for favor actually means grace. So you could think of it this way. God, in His sovereign grace chose to bring salvation to a sinner who deserved to be wiped out just like everybody else. Don't ever think that Noah didn't deserve to be wiped out. He did. God just intervened in his life and showed him sovereign grace, and it wasn't because Noah was such a good guy. Now, think about your salvation. Does God look down and say, hey, I want to save you because you're better than everybody else? Or does God look down and say, you're a sinner like everybody else, but I'm going to save you by grace so you don't boast? Okay. So, his being righteous was, and this is an important thing here, his being righteous was not the cause of God saving him, but the result of God's grace. Look at verse 9. Genesis 6, 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Which comes first? Verse 9 or verse 8? Simple math question. Verse 8 comes first, right? What comes first, grace or works? Okay. A lot of people get that backwards. They put verse 9 before verse 8. They must say, Noah was righteous and blameless and because of that, that must be why he found favor in God's eyes. But actually, he found favor in God's eyes because God chose to show him grace and as a result of grace, Noah then walked in righteousness. Noah was blameless and Noah walked with God. So which comes first? I'm kind of getting in my head of myself. Noah's life of righteousness and walking with God or God showing him grace? It's God showing him Grace. Once God had shown Noah sovereign grace, then as a result, he lives by faith and walks with God in righteousness. Let's just talk about grace for a moment. Grace ceases to be grace if it becomes something God is obligated to give. Is God obligated to give us anything? Is he obligated? Does he have to? No, he chooses to simply because he has the right to do so. We often think of ourselves as undeserving sinners. I'm just an undeserving sinner. Well, not true. It makes it sound like you don't deserve anything. It makes it sound like you're neutral. I'm just an undeserving sinner. I don't, I don't deserve salvation. Well, no, you're not an undeserving sinner. You're not neutral. You're actually ill-deserving, or better, you're hell-deserving. It's not that you're undeserved. Undeserving makes it sounds like you don't deserve anything. I don't deserve salvation. Well, no, you don't deserve salvation. But as a matter of fact, it's worse than that. You don't deserve salvation, but you deserve hell. That's grace. That God gives that to you, even though you deserve to be judged. Okay? So that's the first thing about Noah, was he had, he had faith in events unseen. This whole idea that there was going to be a flood, this whole idea that there was going to be judgment, and God showed him sovereign grace. Now, secondly, Noah's faith was marked by reverent and practical obedience. By faith, let's go back to Hebrews 11 for a minute. Keep switching back and forth here. It says, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, what did he do? In reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Okay. Remember, active by faith. It's active, it's energetic, it obeys with passions, it's not passive. God spoke to Noah. And what did God say to Noah? Blood's coming. Build a boat. And what could Noah have Noah done? God, I've never seen rain. I've never seen judgment. You've spoken to me directly and given me explicit instructions on how to build this ark. You've told me to go get gopher wood and you've given me the exact dimensions and instructions and you told me you're going to flood the earth. That's great information, God. I'll, I think I'll act on that one day. And Noah just sat there and did nothing. Would that be faith? No. He actually had practical obedience. How did he construct the ark? He says he constructed it in what? Reverent fear. Does this mean that Noah was thinking that God was going to strike him with a lightning bolt if he didn't get it right? No. It means that Noah has a healthy fear and awe of the Lord where he obeyed with an attitude of worship. He built the ark in reverent fear. And here's what I think it meant. I may be stretching on this because we, we can't get into Noah's mind and read this, but here's what I think it could possibly mean. He knew that God had every right to drown him in the flood. But instead, God has shown him grace and promised him deliverance through the ark. And Noah obeys with an attitude of heartfelt worship and respect and awe for the living God. Think about the whole time you're building that ark. You're probably thinking to yourself, this vessel is somehow going to save me and my family, but the rest of the world's getting destroyed, and I deserve to be destroyed along with the rest of them. But somehow God's choosing me to build this ark. I don't deserve to build it. I know the sin of my own heart. I just yelled at my wife, Hamshem, and Japheth. Those boys are driving me crazy. Um, he's probably thinking, I don't deserve this. <laughs> But I'm going to build the ark in fear, in reverent fear, because I know that this is a holy God calling me to do this. But secondly, this is where it gets real practical. That was the attitude behind it. I did it with reverent fear. But here's the practical thing. This may seem incidental, but he actually built the ark. What did he do? He got busy getting the wood, the supplies, building this huge ship for 120 years. It was practical obedience. Think about how unglamorous it would be to build an ark. Why not a city? Why not a pyramid? And it might have been downright embarrassing. Because every time somebody walked by, what are they thinking? What are you doing? What are you building, Noah? I'm building this big boat because the earth is going to be flooded. What's a boat? What's a flood? Well, you see, God told this to me directly. What? What? God told you directly to build an ark because he's going to wipe us out. Uh, yeah, we'll see you later, dude. Go, go have fun with your little happy land over there, building your ark. How many years did he do that? 120, 120 years. Okay. Genesis 6.22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. There was no concept of rain, no concept of flood, no concept of, of a boat, but Noah did it. So it was faith in things not yet seen, but it was also this worshipful faith that was active and practical, that actually obeyed. But then, notice what it says there at the end. By this, this building of the ark, what did he do? He condemned the world. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, here's the third thing about Noah's faith. Noah's faith was marked by both a consistent message and lifestyle. By constructing the ark, he condemned the world. In other words, the building of the ark was a visual object lesson that Noah preached for 120 years. We're not given a lot of details, but we do know that Noah was a preacher. his pulpit was big it was the ark and we don't know the details was he standing on the ark you know with the megaphone saying repent or was he swinging a hammer with one hand and holding the bible in the other i mean i don't know was he you know did he have his white suit and his slicked back hair and have a tent revival i mean i'm i'm just joking with you guys we know that the bible says that noah was a preacher because second peter tells us that 2 Peter 2.5 If he, this is God, did not spare the ancient world but preserve Noah a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. The word herald there means preacher, announcing. Um, this is a side note. Well, maybe I should go on this. This is really, really a side note. Okay. There's a, there's a word in the Greek language called keruso. and it comes from the Greek word Kerix. So the Kerix was so it the was a herald, and Caruso was to herald a message. And here's what the word herald means. We don't have this word in our language now. When you wanted to announce news. or you wanted wanted to, like, for example, if a king wanted to, like, okay, back in the ancient days, did they have Fox News? Could you just turn on the TV, here's a Fox News alert, like, every 30 seconds. It's like, you're thinking, what's big? Well, it's some dumb thing in some state, somewhere else that I don't care about. But I'm just being insensitive. But anyway, there's Fox News alerts or whatever else you watch. They come up that broadcast news, and everybody can get it. Okay, when the president has a, press conference what does he do does he often speak he sends his press secretary out there to speak on his behalf in the old days they didn't have that they had to send the herald out so the herald was like the town crier and he was sent on the authority of the king to tell exactly what the king told him he couldn't deviate from the message he couldn't change the message as a matter of fact he may be in prison if he changed the message he had to say exactly what the king told him and he would go out and say here's the message of the king and he would say it verbatim, and he would say it with passion and with urgency, often loud, so that the whole town could hear the news. That's what the word carux or caruso. And so all throughout the New Testament, especially Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it says Jesus preached in the villages. Jesus preached in the synagogues. It's the word caruso in the sense that he was sent on a mission from the king to deliver the message. Okay? Same thing with preachers like myself. Do I have the authority to change this word and make it what I want? Or am I authorized by the king to preach exactly what this word is and to preach it with passion, with urgency, so that you believe? That's what's going on here. That's what that word herald means. So Moses, Peter saying, was a kerux. He was a, a herald. He was a preacher who preached righteousness. Peter says he preached righteousness. Hebrews says he condemned the world. So, there was something in Moses' preaching that condemned the world. It's amazing to me. Here's what the amazing thing is: that even with the profound wickedness that characterized the world at that time, God still, in his patience and kindness, gave them 120 years to repent. Think about how many times God came in. Like when God came into Nineveh, what did he say? 40 days, you need to repent. I'm going to go destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham says, well, what if we find a few people? God gives them 120 years. So every time Noah is preaching, it's an opportunity for these people to repent. It reminds me of Romans 2.4. Do you presume upon the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And in this case, 120 years of kindness. He could have just wiped them out right then. If you think about it, God could have said, like Enoch, Noah, get your family together in a huddle because in a few moments I'm going to translate you up and the rest of the world's going to be flooded. But He didn't do that. He said, I want you to build an ark. And it's going to be a big ark. It's going to take 120 years. But, in addition to Noah's preaching ministry, we know that his lifestyle backed up what he preached. Because what does it say there at the last part of verse 7? He became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. He lived the life of righteousness. Think about this for a moment. Wouldn't it have been really easy for Noah to give up? A guy can only take 120 years of, you know. Like, I'm thinking... Yeah, after year five and they're making fun of you, I can take five years. Maybe ten. 120 years of this. But what does Noah do? He goes out there every day and he gets his hammer and he bangs on the ark. And as people come by, he says, Listen, the reason I'm building this is because God is a God of justice and he's going to flood the earth. You better repent. You're crazy, Noah. Go back to working on the ark. You know, decades later. Fifty years later, doing the same thing. It could have gotten very tedious for Noah. He could have just said, you know what? I've never seen rain. I've never seen a worldwide flood. Why in the world am I building this stupid thing? I'm just going to stop now. I mean, most of us, after maybe even a year, we'd give up. 120 years. It wasn't just words, but it was backed up with action. Noah was preaching a message But he was also backing it up by practically building the ark for 120 years. And it's interesting that the writer of Hebrews uses the term an heir of righteousness. What he's talking about here is the objective righteousness that comes from Christ when we believe in Jesus. This is really justification by faith alone. When we trust Christ for salvation, we are given His righteousness as a gift. Paul teaches that in Romans 3, 21 Because God had come to Noah in sovereign grace and shown him mercy and salvation, God made him an heir of righteousness. God gave him the gift of righteousness as a gift. God graced Noah with this righteousness, not not of himself, but from Christ. He became an heir of righteousness. And here's the point. Every single one of you that's a Christian is an heir of righteousness. Now, is it the righteousness that you brought to the table and produced? Or was it given to you as a gift? So here's the thing. It's the same thing with us today as it was with Noah. If anybody's going to be an heir of righteousness, it's not because of anything we've earned or anything that we've done. It's because Christ earned it and Christ has done it. And we don't bring anything to the table. We don't hand God our righteousness and say, look at all the good things I'm bringing to you, God. I'm righteous. Now because I'm righteous, God, you are obligated to save me because of how good I am. Is that the way salvation works? What does God actually look at you and say? Yeah, bring your righteousness to me, but it's like filthy rags. Even the good things you bring are like filthy rags. You need righteousness as a gift. And how does righteousness come to you? Through Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says what? For our sake, that's Jesus. For our sake, He made Him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, here's where it gets very, very personal to our culture today. As we look at Noah's faith, we see that God came with a warning, and that same warning comes to us today. What was the warning in Noah's day? There's so much wickedness on the earth, I'm going to destroy it. Jesus, in the Olivet Discourse, in Matthew 24, when He's on the Mount of Olives, teaching on the end times, listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 24, 37-39. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Okay, let's make a comparison here. In Noah's day, what was the punishment? Flood. And it was sudden. Jesus is going to come back a second time, and is the punishment going to be a flood? it's going to be fire. The earth will be destroyed with fire. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. But ultimately, the unrepentant, the lost people, will spend eternity in the lake of fire. So the judgment that's coming at the coming of Christ is a whole lot more intense than even the flood was. This is an eternal judgment. The flood was just a temporal judgment. So what's the warning for us today? Judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. And if you don't have a relationship with this Jesus, that day will be far worse than the flood. So the question is, how do you escape the judgment? You do the same thing Noah did. And You say, what do you mean? What did Noah do? Noah entered the ark. Well, that helps me out a lot, Sean. Just go enter the ark and you'll be saved. And that's exactly what I mean. Jesus is the ark. Ever thought about that? Think about the days of Noah for a moment. There was only one way to escape the flood. You had to enter the ark. There was only one ark, and it only had one door. What does Jesus say about himself? He's the only way of salvation. He's the door. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. How do you escape the judgment? You enter Him. You can't save yourself. You have to enter into Jesus to save you. Now, there's a very poignant image that I love in the Noah story that sometimes is just glossed over that seals the deal when we think about our salvation. Genesis seven fifteen through sixteen. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life, and all those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded, and the Lord shut him in. Who closed the door of the ark? God did. It's almost as if God put his final stamp of exclamation point on Noah and said, Noah, I've saved you by sovereign grace. I've commissioned you to build the ark. You've entered the ark. You've been obedient. I'm going to flood the earth. And now just to make sure that you're safe, let me close the door. Let me make sure that it's sealed shut. So when the flood comes, you're saved. That's the same thing that God does to us in our eternal security. When we come to Jesus for salvation, when we enter into Him, it's in a sense, God shuts the door. God shuts us in. God keeps us safe. God does not let the, the floods, the fires, the temptations, the, the final um, judgment, that, that will not touch us because we're safely inside the ark. And so when you think about these two men of faith, Enoch, let's just review. Enoch had a faith that pleased God. He walked with God. And he sought after God, and he had a close fellowship with God. And he was a preacher for years. Noah, saved by grace, walked with God, obeyed God, built the ark, practical obedience, believed in the fact that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. So it was faith in the right God. And it was a faith in a God that has the right to save and a God that has the right to judge. I've said this many times before recently because I think it's getting lost in our culture. If you don't understand this one truth, I would say you don't understand Christianity. You may agree or disagree with me. Here's, here's, here's what I would say. God has the right to save sinners and to punish the wicked. If you don't believe that, you don't believe the Bible. But I think that's getting lost in our culture. What do you mean God has the right? Number 1, God, what do you mean God has the right? I thought I had rights. No, God has the sovereign right to do what he wants to do. And he will save those who come to faith in Christ, but if you don't come to faith in Christ, he has the right to punish you. You see that all throughout the Bible. I mean that's that's the whole and that's what we see here in Noah. God chose to save Noah and he flooded the rest of the world. It wasn't because Noah was any better, it was because God just showed grace to Noah. The same way we're no better than other people, God chose to show grace to us and we come to Christ.